Thank you, choir. On the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested and tried and beaten and crucified, that night prior, he shared that meal with his disciples and told them that he had to leave them. It was a moment of panic, a moment of fear, a moment of insecurity and uncertainty. And in the midst of that moment, Jesus said, peace, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. I give you my peace. You may feel like your world is uncertain right now. You may feel like you're insecure or you're lonely or you don't know uh, what's going to happen in the future. And that's all of us because we're not God. And I hope you hear Jesus speaking to you today with the choir just saying, peace, peace. It's going to be okay. God's going to win in the end. God's going to get things right. We can trust that. Peace he gives to us. Will you receive his peace today and quit trying to spin your wheels to fix it yourself and receive the peace that passes understanding? Thank you, Aaron, and inquire for that beautiful uh, words of Jesus to us. It doesn't get much more biblical than just the text that Jesus says to us. Well, we've made it to the end of yet another book of the Bible. If you've been here for our series in the Gospel of John back in 2019, it seems like a lifetime ago for some of you. Uh, if you were here for the history of the church in the book of Acts in 2020, and of course, if you made it through the entire book of Isaiah last year, the long prophecy, and if it was hard for you to, to listen to sermons from Isaiah every week for a year, I'm just going to say it wasn't easy preparing sermons, okay, from Isaiah for a whole year. So just know it goes both ways, okay? If you've done all that, then you've now walked with us verse by verse pretty much through four complete books of the Bible. There's only 62 to go, so buckle up and... Uh, We'll, we'll get there uh, someday. Maybe we won't. Some of you may be thinking, I know some of you are thinking this because some of you have said this to me. Is this how it's going to be from now on? Are you just going to preach through like books of the Bible from now on? And, <laughs> and the answer is probably, yeah, mostly. Yes. Yes. Okay. And if that's hard for you, let me try to explain uh, why I think we should do this. Okay. Briefly before we get into this probably won't get on the air at the end of it. You can go online and watch the rest of the service if you're watching on TV. I'm sorry. As Christians, we are people who are convinced that God is the most glorious, most perfect, most beautiful being in all of creation, right? We're convinced that God is the ultimate good in, in everything ever. Therefore, we also believe that God's ways are best that God's ways of doing things actually lead to human flourishing, and not just flourishing for us as people, but flourishing for our world. God's way of doing church is best. God's way of doing family is best. God's way of working at your job, whether you're a pharmacist or a retiree or you're a, a businessman or a teacher or whatever it may be, God's ways of, of doing things our best. God's ways of raising children are best. God's ways of participating in politics are best, right? We believe that as Christians. So how do we know God's ways? Well, 
there's a certain kind of general revelation that we can see from the created order around us. We can look at the Grand Canyon and say, wow, the God who made this is a majestic God of great glory and power and strength. But in order to know what we call specific revelation, the, the, the details of God's ways, we have to have something more specific. And praise be to God, he left us with a written revelation of himself that we call the Holy Bible. And we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God that reveals to us his ways. And we, we don't really know the specifics apart from the Bible. And he's graciously given us this book, and now we are people, therefore, of the book. We're people who are informed and, and shaped by this document that we call the Bible. We believe it's supernaturally living and active, doing things that reading the newspaper doesn't do to us, or reading a textbook doesn't do to us and in us. We're now people of the book. Our statement of faith, I'm sure you've all read it and memorized it on our website, it says this of Scripture. I've taken out all the Bible references, which is ironic, talking about the Bible. Go back and look them all up because they're all good. The Bible is God's holy word and is exactly as he intended for it to be. That's my way of saying inerrant. That's, that's really what I mean. It's God's gracious written self-revelation to the world. It's a living document, and it gives us eternal words of life, instruction, wisdom, and love. We know God better and grow in grace through deeply engaging with his word. We therefore seek to submit ourselves under the authority of God's word. We therefore approach scripture with humility. We don't have all the answers. We're not God. With discipline, do you have a reading plan? And faith, we believe that the Holy Spirit guides us as we engage with the Bible. We don't say just read the Bible, but engage with it. If all this is true, what's written on our church's website about our statement of beliefs, then one of the most important things we can do as a church, as people of Woodmont Baptist Church, is gather together regularly to hear the word of God preached and proclaimed, right? I'm not just saying, trying to make myself important as the preacher, but we all need to hear God's word taught together and explained and exposited and applied to our lives. Therefore, I'm committed to feeding our church with a steady diet of what I hope is faithful, biblical, expository preaching. What's expository preaching? That sounds like one of those seminary words. It is. It means simply to expose the truth of Scripture. Therefore, in expository preaching, the point of the text ought to be, it isn't always if I get it wrong, but it ought to be the point of the sermon. The point of the text ought to be the point of the sermon. Occasionally, I will preach a topical sermon, like when we did the five triangles a couple years ago, and I taught on worship, and I taught on evangelism, and I taught on discipleship, and on fellowship. Those were topical sermons, and that's okay to preach topically. Frank Lewis last week gave us a, a topical sermon on, on hope, and that was great, and how to cope and hope through this world. Nothing wrong with that, but in topical preaching, you're pretty much limited to what the preacher knows, right? The preacher, and I know some stuff. I, I got some degrees, 
There's a lot of other preachers in this town that know a lot more than I do. And they're like Frank. And his topical preaching is great. I learned so much from it. But we're limited in topical preaching to what the preacher knows. And if a preacher only preached topical sermons, that church will look like that pastor. And I don't want you guys to look like me. I want you to look like Jesus. And in order to be conformed to Jesus, we have to be listening to his word. In expository preaching, we go into God's word and say, what does the Lord have to tell us in this text? And then we reap what God has for us there. We apply it to our lives and we go back out into the world. So I, I, I know that, that wasn't brief as I wanted it to be, but I hope this explains. And we can't just pick and choose either, guys. I have a friend who says if the Bible was a house, the, the entryway, the main floor would be the Gospels. That's kind of like Christianity 101, the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But the basement's like the Old Testament. You don't go down there unless you have to, right? Like, got to do laundry, got to go down there to the basement, oh boy. And then upstairs is really where you spend most of your time, which is, of course, Paul's letters, <laughs> which we're in right now, which I love preaching Paul's letters, and we all love reading Paul's letters and the other epistles, the, the general epistles uh, in the New Testament. But we need a steady diet of everything, right? 2 Timothy 3.16, you've heard this. All scripture is breathed out by God. Leviticus is breathed out by God, okay? Nahum, how many of you actually read Nahum? Don't raise your hands. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Do you want to be trained in the right way to go? Acts 20, verse 27, the apostle Paul told the elders in Ephesus that he did not shrink from declaring to them the whole counsel of God. You can't just eat dessert. You gotta have the meat. You gotta, we call them strong foods in our house. You gotta eat some strong food before you can have dessert. <laughs> you gotta have the veggies. You gotta have the potatoes before you can just have your dessert. So the Bible is one cohesive unit and it's made up of lots of different kinds of, of writing. You need a balanced diet of Old Testament and New Testament of prophecy and of poetry, of history and gospel accounts, of wisdom and worship literature like the Psalms and Proverbs. All right, we're gonna put that into practice now, okay? If you have questions about that, let me know, but I hope you understand this is like our philosophy of preaching here at Woodmont Baptist Church, and I hope it's life-giving. We're gonna try this now by diving into our final text in this beautiful, beautiful book of the letter to the churches in Galatia. Let me set it up for you in case you've missed it. We have a lot of visitors today. I, I, I saw at least a few Sunday school classes that had to add chairs, sorry, life groups. We're calling them life groups. <laughs> yeah, they had to add chairs to their life group because there were so many people coming. So beautiful to see the fellowship that is engendered in those, those places. Let's, let's remember where we've been. We've seen already how the Apostle Paul has been pleading with these dear brothers and sisters who've been led astray by the, the false gospel of the Judaizers, these false teachers who've come in and would have the people in Galatia, these baby Christians, submit again to a yoke of slavery and obey all the Mosaic law, the Old Testament rules. These poor people have fallen into this kind of soul-crushing legalism 
that says you have to earn your way to God by being good, by following all the rules. The false teachers had been teaching these Galatian churches that keeping the old rules like circumcision was necessary in order to be a Christian. And they apparently were winning some converts. I don't know how. I don't know who thought that was an appealing message. But they were winning some converts to their message. But the true gospel is that God, in his amazing grace and love, has found a way, created a way, for us to be made right with him, for sinful humans to be put together with a holy God. He sent his only son. He loved us so much that he didn't withhold his only son, Jesus the Messiah, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, to pay the debt of sin that we alone owed. And by dying on the cross, he took our guilt, our shame, our suffering upon himself. Now, we who put our trust in his sacrificial atoning death and glorious resurrection as being sufficient to pay our debt, people who put our trust in that are now the new covenant people of God. And that trust in, in Jesus and what he's done is what we call faith, believing that God has done, that he can do, and that he will do everything necessary for our salvation and restoration to himself. We don't bring anything to the table in and of ourselves except all of the baggage that has made our salvation necessary in the first place. We bring our shame, we bring our guilt, we bring our, our suffering, all the, the, the pain that our sin has caused. And he takes it and exchanges it for his righteousness that is only his. We now live according to the Holy Spirit in us, not according to the fallen flesh. We live for Christ as he lives in us, Galatians 2.20. So let's hear this morning how Paul wraps this. That's a summary of Galatians, okay? We're going to hear this morning how Paul wraps this beautiful letter up. Let's stand in honor of God's word as we read Galatians chapter 6, uh, verses 11 to 18. Hear now the word of the Lord. See with what large letters... I'm writing to you with my own hand. It's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. For far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither, neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may have a seat. You know, I love new things. Uh, I love new clothes, new shoes, new car smell. I like new gadgets. You know, like a new watch, new phone. When you get a new phone, oh, that's, that's real exciting. 
I bought a new water bottle last week. You know, it wasn't expensive, but I'm so excited about it because it's a new toy, new water bottle. That's really just materialism, isn't it, okay? I, I like new things because in my fallen flesh, I'm materialistic. Thankfully, the Holy Spirit and my wife are helping uh, me to overcome my materialism. But the Lord also seems to have an affinity for newness. We see in Scripture all the time God's preference for renewal and for new things. Remember Isaiah 43, one of my favorite passages, verse 18 and 19, when God tells us to wake up and pay attention to something new. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Some of you don't like change. I get it. But new things are what God does. We find out later in Isaiah that the new thing that God is doing, that he's talking about in Isaiah 43, that whole new thing centers around this one figure, this suffering servant who would enact this new thing that God is doing. He's going to come and suffer greatly in our place, but ultimately he's going to rescue us. And not only will he rescue us, he's going to redeem us. He's going to buy us back. He's going to restore us to our place as God's special family of faith, a chosen people for himself. He's going to renew our strength, Isaiah tells us. And ultimately, God, along you know, through his servant, is going to make a whole new created order. Isaiah 65, verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or even come into mind. So how exactly does God do this? How does he and his servant, we know, do this? And what does it have to do with us? Where's our part in this? Well, God does this renewing work along with God the Spirit through the incarnation and the life and the death and the resurrection of God the Son, the suffering servant of the Lord. And where do we fit in? Well, everyone who believes in this good news of renewal becomes a part of it. We get to participate right now in the blessings to, to come. We die to our old selves and we put on the new self in order to play our part in the renewal of all creation. So our outline for today is called a new creation, referencing that verse in Galatians 6. This is how the cross changes everything and eventually not only makes us new, but makes all things new. Paul wants to close this letter with a really personal touch and he wants to, to drive home the centrality of the gospel for the Christian life. And, and in order to do this, he grabs the pen from his scribe. You know, it's very typical for the New Testament writers to have a scribe. It's called an amanuensis, if you want to know the fancy seminary word that I paid thousands of dollars to learn. Uh, it's somebody who's writing it down while Paul dictates it. He grabs the reed pen and the, the papyrus that is writing this letter on, and he starts writing himself. And apparently Paul had bad, bad handwriting, which I do too. So there you go, me and Paul, uh, some, some bad handwriting. He says, look at these huge letters I'm, I'm writing in, in verse 11. You know, handwritten notes are special, aren't they? 
It's almost a lost art, I feel like. But you know who's bringing it back? Young Evan Kuntz, our student minister. He's written so many, raise your hand back there. If you've gotten a letter from Evan Kuntz that's in his own handwriting. Yeah, a lot, oh yeah, lots of you have. Excellent, I have too. Uh, yeah, all these youth up here have too. He's, he's doing it, man, he's bringing it back. His handwriting's not great either, uh, but that's okay. You're in, you're in good company, Evan, it's okay. How many of you received a letter from one of the saints who's gone uh, before us? None of you new people, but uh, you older people uh, from Kathleen Horrell. How many of you received a letter from, wow, that's almost everybody who was in this church received a letter from Kathleen Horrell at some point. That was her ministry. She wrote letters of encouragement. I was in Marjorie Ray, one of our senior adults uh, rooms, visiting her at a rehab facility uh, just this week, and she had a stack of handwritten cards on her table in front of her because they mean so much. Murtis Owens, who's well into her 90s and suffering from neck and back pain, she had written Marjorie a letter, a handwritten letter. It matters. That's what Paul's doing. He's writing with his own hand here. Paul wants that letter to have this intimacy, this conclusion is so special that it can only come from his own hand. So we do well to pay attention. And part one here on your outline is a warning a final warning that Paul gives in verse 12, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. He's gonna talk about these false teachers who teach false doctrine. Look at verse 12. It's those who wanna make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. They're teaching circumcision, that's a false doctrine. You don't have to be outwardly right to be inwardly right. The false doctrine that outward religion can make you inwardly right with God is false. Do people still believe this today? Of course they do. Oh, I go to church, so I'm good. I, I uh, gave some money to a mission trip, so uh, I'm, I'm definitely good. I've been baptized. I'm all set. I, uh, you know, have been in a small group for a while. I'm good. But our salvation only comes through faith by grace that God gives us in the gospel of Jesus. If you buy into false doctrine, you will live a false life that leads to destruction. Only by living true doctrine do you live, do you live into true life. You will have built your life, if you live by false doctrine, on shifting sand. And when the storms come, your life will inevitably fall apart. Orthodoxy, right doctrine, leads to orthodoxy. Praxy, right living. And only the firm foundation of the gospel provides what the writer of Hebrews calls a steady anchor for our souls. We're betting our lives on something. Everyone is. Better make sure it's true and right and good. We're all free to believe whatever we want until we die. And then all that matters is what's true. When we stand before God to give an account for our lives, all that matters is what was right, what is right, what is good, really good, and what is true. It's not just that these false teachers are just, you know, ignorant or, or misguided uh, of the truth. It's that they don't care about the truth. Verse 12 said that the false teachers not only have false doctrine, but they also have false motives. They're doing this from selfish ambition. That they force these new converts to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted so they won't be persecuted for the cross of Christ. They're trying to make a good showing in the flesh. 
In other words, they're doing exactly what Paul said not to do in Galatians 1, verse 10, when he said, am I now trying to please man or am I trying to please God? They're trying to please man. Just some history, really quickly, says that in Acts chapter 15, there was a group of ultra-legalistic Christians in Jerusalem that were teaching, they were from Judea, Jerusalem, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. These false teachers in Galatia were trying to appease this legalistic sect of Christians in Jerusalem. And at the same time, they're, they're telling the Jewish powers that be in Jerusalem that they're circumcising all these Greek pagan people out in Galatia as Jewish converts. So these false teachers thought they had the best of both worlds. They had a new Christian sect that they controlled that avoided persecution from both the legalistic Christians and from the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem. But really, they're just cowards. They're selfish, and they're cowards. They're not willing to take a stand for something that might be true, yet might cost them dearly. They have no real moral convictions. They only want to feel good about themselves. So they brag about their newfound new converts, like verse 13 says. For even those who are circumcised don't themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. Look at what these guys are doing. Isn't that great? We did that. Paul's saying, don't buy it. Don't fall for their lies. They don't have your best interests at heart. They are using you for their own advantage. The book of James tells us that we who teach others, all you life group teachers, pay attention. James says that we who teach others about the things of God will be judged with greater strictness. So we really need to question, do we teach from a place of genuine concern for the others, or are we teaching from selfish ambition and vain conceit? So after this final warning against false teaching, Paul moves on to reinforce the centrality of the gospel in the next two verses where he expounds on part two of your outline, the greatness of the cross. The greatness of the cross in verses 14 and 15. Instead of bragging about his converts or the success of his own ministry, Paul seeks to boast only in the greatness of the cross because it changes everything. Read verses 14 and 15. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but only a new creation. The good news of Jesus not only changes the world and makes it new, it changes how we view the world and how we relate to it and how we live in it. So point A on your outline is the gospel transforms and transcends this world. That's a huge deal for how we live. Before we heard the gospel and believed in it through faith, we were doomed to follow the ways of this fallen world. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Satan 
has been allowed some dominion in this world. He's the prince of the vain, empty things of earth. He would love nothing more than to keep us focused on earthly stuff. Uh, Elena in our Sunday school class today was talking about focusing on earthly stuff or focusing on heavenly stuff. That was a great point. Satan would love to keep our focus on the things of this world because he knows it leads to destruction. And that's what he's trying to do, destroy us. But the cross leads to new life. The gospel has a way of making dead things alive, of making old things new again. You know, this church, we have a lot of senior adults, a lot of saints who've lived a long time. You know, they say death comes in threes, but we've, we've had four um, in the last couple weeks as we celebrated Chris Phillips yesterday, as we celebrate uh, Lee Simmons' life um, on Monday, and then as we celebrate Jan Regan um, on the 8th, and then uh, Jim Cantrell on the 1st, four of our saints who've gone on to glory. And, and we're reminded that life is so short, and it's such a, 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 a mist that's here today and gone tomorrow. And some of you, you know, you get up there in age, and you, and you start having all these ailments, and it's, it's hard to watch people walk through that. But we're reminded that God makes old things new again through the gospel. And though outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly, what? He's making us new day by day. That's what the gospel does. And it's been neat to actually see that play out in the lives of our senior adults. We cannot do this on our own. The gospel does this for us. Many of you have seen the gospel illustration that we sometimes call the bridge diagram. Rachel uses this all the time with our kids. It's a great tool for evangelism. And really, any gospel presentation should have four parts to it. Starting with God. He's a holy God. He's totally other than. He's completely perfect in his glory. And he loves us, and he wants to give us eternal life. But there's a problem. We've sinned. All humans have fallen short. Not just done bad things. It's not just that we have done bad. It's that we are bad. We're born sinful into original sin, as Psalm 51 reminds us. The wages of sin is death then, both physically and spiritually. And there's a judgment that our sin and death naturally incur. And, and that all of our good works are not enough, that we don't come close to the standard of God's glory on our own. So God did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He sent Jesus to be the bridge between us and himself. Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. And it's not really, this arrow is kind of the wrong direction. I think it should be this way. God came to us. He came to rescue us. He built a way for him to come to us so that we could be made right with him. And the, the more you understand how deeply flawed and broken we are, the more you understand how great this chasm actually is and how great the cross actually is. The cross is magnified when we see how great the chasm was between us and God. Our response then, number four, is to believe, to repent of our sins, to put our trust in Jesus. That's a basic gospel presentation that all of you can draw on a napkin. I pray that y'all will have the opportunity to do that this very week. And the, the, the thing with this gospel is that nothing we do outwardly matters. All that matters is whether the gospel has made us one with God or not. Have we been restored through Jesus to God? Have we been born again into a new life? Our baptism is a symbol of dying to ourselves and being raised into a whole new kind of human. 
And if we're still dead in our sins, then we haven't been raised into a new life. Those who've been born once will die twice, as Bill Sherman always says, and those who've been born twice will only die once. If you need that explained to you, see me after. If we're not only reconciled, we're not only reconciled to God through the cross, everyone who's crossed that bridge is also reconciled to one another in this new covenant family that we call the church. We who are new creations in Christ are now the new people of God, the body of Christ on earth. That's our part three of our outline, the new people of God. I love John Stott's commentary on Galatians. I've been using it a lot in my sermon prep. He sees three key truths about the church in verse 16. Read verse 16. As for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. First off, the church is the Israel of God. Remember in chapter 4 when Paul said that those who trust in Jesus are citizens of the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, not the old earthly Jerusalem. We get to be grafted into God's special family, his own people for his own possession, ready to carry out our part in God's story that he's telling. Second, the church has a rule to reform it. What rule? Paul says all who walk by this rule The word for rule is canon in Greek, C-A-N-O-N, and it refers to a measurement. It's something a carpenter would use to make sure that his measurements were standard. What's the standard for Christians? It's the gospel itself. It's the word of God revealed in Jesus. That's the whole story of scripture. The story of everything centers on the gospel of Jesus. And that canon not only guides and directs us, it shapes us It forms us and it reforms us as we let God's word take root in our hearts. And finally, the church enjoys peace and mercy when it's reformed according to the rule of God's word. True flourishing comes from blessings that are ours only when we give ourselves to Jesus, depending on him alone for our righteousness. At the foot of the cross, we find a peace that passes understanding and mercies that are new every morning. Paul closes his letter with a conclusion. It's a call to first off submit to his good authority, and then it's a blessing of God's good grace. A call to submit to Paul's authority and a blessing of grace. Verse 17, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. This is not talking about stigmata. This is not talking about the wounds that Jesus received. It's talking about all the sufferings that Paul had endured, imprisonments, beatings, several attempts to kill him. His actions had authenticated his allegiance, is what he's saying. He has the authority of a good apostle of Jesus Christ. I get it. We don't like authority. We're loath to submit to authority. I always think I know better than authority in my pride. I get it, but when someone has proven over and over again that their intentions toward us are nothing but good and right, we can trust them, we can submit to them, we would do well to let them lead us in the way that we should go. Finally, in verse 18, Paul uses that beautiful G word that we just can't get enough of, grace. It's permeated the whole letter, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the last thing he can say. He's, he's exasperated with these guys and girls. He's like, 
may just the grace of God be with your spirits. That's the last blessing that he can give them. Even though he's frustrated with them, he still calls them brothers and sisters. Life together is messy. We're going to disagree on things, but we're still family. And his prayer is that God's amazing grace would transform their conflicted, enslaved spirits and give them peace. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this message to Galatians? Let's do what Paul urges us to do in this final section. Let's not give any credence to the words of those who are trying to deceive us for their own gain. Let's listen to what the high and holy God of the universe has to say to us because he loves us more than we know. Let's understand the greatness of the, the chasm that was bridged for us by the cross of Jesus. New life, abundant life, is possible only through a new birth by giving ourselves to God through the cross of Christ. Finally, let's live as God's people in this world, constantly reforming. Guys, the, the church is in constant need of reformation. Constantly reforming church according to the living word of the living God. Again, John Stott said of Galatians, Christ through his apostles to teach us. Christ through his cross to save us. Christ through his spirit to sanctify us. This, in a nutshell, is the message of the epistles to the Galatians and indeed of Christianity itself. That was written on the back of Mike Bennett's commentary on Galatians that Jan Bennett gave me recently. Will you surrender and submit to the, the teaching of Christ? Will you surrender and, and, and receive the salvation that Christ's cross has wrought for you? And will you live according to the spirit of Christ in order to, to both corporately as a church look more like him and personally, individually look more like him as you journey carrying your own cross, walking in the way of our Savior? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this beautiful message that we all need to hear. It's really a word of reproof. It's a word of correction because we're so prone to put our trust in, in things of this world. We're so prone to focus on things of this world. We're, we're convinced in our own minds that we're pretty good people and therefore we should be admitted into your heaven. God, help us to remember it's only by grace through faith in you that we can come to you now and approach your throne with confidence, covered by the blood of Jesus, that we can have an intimate relationship with you, the high and holy God of all creation, that we can call you Abba, Father, and worship you in freedom, free from guilt, free from shame, that we can come to you freely and say, you are our heavenly Father in whom we have put all of our trust, and we are betting everything on you. God, help us to live more and more free from the things of this world. Help us to live in the, the truth of the gospel. Help us to stop giving credence to those who would only seek to profit off of us and exploit us for their own gain. God, I pray that you would help us to share this good news with others passionately, urgently, as they are lost and searching. May we be so conformed to your image that we would care about the things that you care about 
including those who are lost and searching around us, including places where injustice is continuing to run rampant and where we can meet needs in your name, such as in giving to Ukrainian refugees, such as in helping in Waverly homes recover from flooding, such as helping with men who have nowhere to sleep with room in the inn every other Saturday. Oh God, you've given us all these blessings. May we share them freely with others in joy. Lord, we love you. We pray this all in the powerful name of your holy son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. We're going to have a time of response now. If you've never submitted your life to Jesus and you say, I, I need to surrender everything to him, it's all been lip service. Maybe you've, you've, you've been baptized. Maybe you've walked down the aisle and you realize you're not really showing signs of regeneration. Maybe you haven't been born again and, and your soul's in trouble. I'd love to talk with you about that. I'll be down front, whatever it is. Maybe you just want to come pray because you're broken over some decision. The altar will be open uh, during this time. Uh, whatever it is you need to do, don't leave this place without having dealt honestly with the Lord in your heart. Maybe you're ready to join Woodmont as a member. We believe in church membership. I'm, I'm fleshing that out still after the conference I was at last week. But if you want to be a part of what God's doing, you say, I'm in at Woodmont, then uh, I'd love to come talk with you here. Whatever it is you need to do, let's stand and sing.